Welcome to a new episode of the Saltwater Euphoria Podcast. This is your go-to sport fishing podcast, where we will cover all things from fishing, boats, tackle, and anything else saltwater related. Well done, gentlemen. Every day is an adventure on the water. We'll be sharing our experiences, stories, tips, and passion for fishing. Gonna need a bigger boat. Oh, think bigger, my friend. Think bigger. Here is your host, Captain Ricky Wheeler. Happy New Year, everyone. Here we are, episode 32 of the Salty Euphoria podcast. Uh, not too much report here, just been enjoying the holidays. I hope all of you have as well. Nice to kind of kick back and relax a little bit and really, really looking forward to 2024 here. I'll be getting to it here in the new year and doing a little bit of fishing in Florida, Bahamas, and then Dominican Republic. So I am amped. Great first half of the year lined up and so many new happenings going on. So really excited to bring all that to you as the year goes on. But we're going to jump right into it this year with this podcast, and I'm really, really excited for you all to hear this one because I personally learned a lot from it. Our guest on this episode is a wealth of information, especially in the electronics world, and we went through everything from different types of electronics to the Omni sonars and the differences between each one that's available, and even just way more than that. And the core part of it all is the fact that he's been building his own 45-foot sport fish. We dive into that and what it is to be a DIY boat builder, as I've spoke about in previous podcasts with my friend Chris in the first episode and also with Mark Schlaes of Emmy Boats, who helps people do their own DIY. And this guest just decided to go for it and has been working on it on the side for a while and has lots of cool information about it and just a really cool podcast to listen to. I hope you learn as much from it as I did. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce to you, Richard Halls. How you doing today? Doing well. How are you doing? Great. Great. Just uh, trying to get all my ducks in a row here. <laughs> so what are you up to? How's your... Uh, Christmas, you know, trying to get through that, trying to make my way down to work on some boats and working on my own boat. And the rain had kind of messed me up these past couple of days. I was trying to get back down to North Carolina and finish up. So now I'm stoked to talk to you. Well, let's um let's go ahead and jump into it. So for people that don't know, tell everybody who you are, where you're from, and, and what it is that you do now. My I'm basically from the Chesapeake Bay. I grew up uh, on the Magathy River, which is just north of Annapolis. Mm-hmm. I started kind of playing with the water as a child with my grandparents. So I came from a broken family, had you know some divorce issues. So I spent a lot of time with my parents or my grandparents when I was a kid. And my grandfather didn't really believe in being a real, you know, person when it came to having a job. He was an outdoorsman. So he never really held a real job. So we did firewood and hunting during the wintertime as a guide service. And then during the summer times, we basically spent our time commercial crabbing and fishing on the Chesapeake. We had uh, uh, like a low 40 foot vertical stem dead rise plank on frame boat that I had or what family had since I was a kid it started maybe about six seven years old I remember it working on it uh, we used to basically take it out and we had 500 trap license and we ran crab pots from Annapolis up to the top of the Gibson Island Sound up there and that was kind of our life I would go out after we got back from calling crabs all day and I would go out in John boat and pick peelers and doublers off the bottom in a John boat and that was my life that's and, awesome 
it was awesome. It was, it was a really, you know, I don't, I look back at now and you, you, you think, well, that was your childhood and it was this or that, but it really did shape me into what I was. And now, do you know what I mean? Uh -huh. many, many later, and you don't realize that. So like my grandfather had a little 19 foot um, American center console, had a, you know, Johnson on it. We would take it out and catch sea trout and rockfish and literally no coolers. We would just fill the boat up full of fish, put the boat on the trailer and take it to the market. We'd sell the fish <laughs> right out of the boat. And and I remember being a little boy, just riding around in the boat, you know, ankle deep in stripers, you know, and it was just, it was just, it was a different world. I, I really didn't think about it much back then. But, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty know. cool to think about it that was, way. It was cool. And then, you know, so my father, he wasn't really into the boating side of from the fishing and commercial side. He was into it from, he liked to work on boats. So when I was about 11, we built our first boat it was a little a three point hydroplane. It was called a tiny Titan. Uh, it was all Kumi and we glassed it up and, and had a little 25 horsepower <laughs> outboard and ran that around the Magathy and had a great time with it. So that kind of started the boat building or construction thing. And it kind of always felt a passion for building things out of wood and metal and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So the way that then evolved is he was, I don't know, I guess I was about 12 or 13. He went to North, uh, or Florida, picked up a car, kit car Cobra. And it came in like 11 pieces. So it was like fenders and bodies and whatnot and body parts. And we would fiberglass the whole thing together. We took the next three years and glassed this thing together. I was, it was like 11 to like 14 or 15. And that's I how I wondered how those kit cars work. That's pretty cool. I, I, I've looked at them when I was younger and I was way more into cars and boats. Well, I was yep. always in boats, but I didn't think I could ever afford one. It's like, yes. I could probably do this kit car thing. <laughs> it's neat. It's what it was. We, he went down in a, flatbed Chevrolet truck and they came back with all these pieces and I just remember like we just started kind of laying out on the garage floor and kind of you know screwing it together with different pieces and then we glued you know the front to the back and the pans in and all this stuff and like I said it was all shaping me for who I am now which I didn't even realize was was doing three or four years worth of fiberglass work at 11 years old you know and that kind of built into doing fiberglass now so yeah. after that you know the car got finished and I kind of got a little older and we began to spend a little bit more time fishing outside of the commercial side. So my grandfather had a friend named Mike Lestorty and he used to tie bucktails for the local tackle shop. Well, I was the bucktail tire. I was, he would dip them and I would tie them. Well, that evolved into, he had a 23 Seacraft in board, 87 or 89. That's a cool boat. That's a real it was a cool boat. boat. You know, yeah. I didn't know it was back then, but that was the first boat everyone offshore in, you know, that was what he <laughs> had. And, and that was a cool boat for a guy to have back then. So, yeah. um, so I used to tie, you know, Bucktail for Michael Storty. He ended up, you know, taking me offshore in that that 23 Seacraft. And and that's kind of where fishing, that sort of 16, 17 year old where fishing sort of ended for me for a while. So I got into girls and cars, snowboarding, board sports, and mm. it just kind of drew me away from that side of my family a little bit. So back when I was about 24 or so, 23, 24. I kind of, I was working at a place called EIP tuning. We were building Audis and Volkswagens in Westminster, Maryland. And we, I learned how to weld aluminum and stainless. So it just kind of evolved into building stuff out of metal. Good so trade we to know. Yeah, good trade to know. So yeah. I didn't realize that I was learning for the future. So intake <laughs> manifolds, exhaust manifolds and turbo systems. And I learned how engine managements work and stuff like that, how engines work on a really low level. So what happened was, you know, I got really passionate about that. But then I found wakeboarding. And wakeboarding became this obsession of mine around 23 years old. And I especially on the Chesapeake, there's a lot of a lot of wake boats there, like good ones. <laughs> a lot yeah. of people do it. 
And there's a lot of places to do it. There's a lot of back yeah. creeks that you can kind of sneak up into and they didn't have six mile an hour zones. And we would go in there as kids and abuse these places. We would fill yeah. these boats up with thousands of pounds of lead and water and we would just, you know, destroy the docks down the but we would do sandbags, load of sandbags. Oh, sandbags <laughs> all kinds of Anything we could put in the boat. More people, more people the better. So so I became really passionate about about wakeboarding. I got so passionate that I actually went out and bought a boat. I went and got a shop where I could build T-tops and hard tops for fishing boats so I could be around the boats. So with, that kind of led into me getting a shop where I had an apartment above it. So during the day, I would wakeboard and continue to try to get better at that. And at night, I would build T-tops and hard tops and weld anodized pipe for boats. So I kind of moved from cars around 23 or 24 and in, into that marine world. And I just kind of lived in it ever since. Uh -huh. So I had a really nice landlord right around there that decided to drag me to Hatteras. Now I'd never, I'd been offshore at a watch pre on the 23 Seacraft when I was 16 or so. And I hadn't been out in the ocean, really out in the water much since then, other than wakeboarding, no fishing. Right. So my landlord was, you know, had a 26 glacier bay and they used to take it to um, teach his lair every year during Mahi season around May. And I didn't know anything about this, but I'm just, just they did it every year. So we went down there. I remember driving through the night, seven hour, eight hour drive. And we were driving through these rainstorms and we were driving through Buxton and it was all flooded. And I was just like, where are we going? Why are we here? What are we doing? And he just invited me for this fishing trip. And I was single. I didn't care. So <laughs> get down to teach us and basically left the boat there in the morning and they had rented a house. They do this every year. So they launched the boat in the morning and we were leaving the inlet. Like I said, I was just very, a lot of anticipation. I didn't know what was going on. I was, you know, young then. And we just drove straight to, there was this uh, weather buoy out there and we got there before everyone else. And it's just South of the towers. And I didn't, I didn't really know what we were getting into, but they were like, just grab a spinning rod. Okay. So we kind of roll up to this buoy and I cast this, you know, little jig out there and it was full of 10 to 15 pound dolphin. And I mean, as many as you wanted to catch. And it was just three of us on the boat. They didn't have any other people to drag down there. I hadn't really used a spinning rod in a while. And we, we slaughtered so many dolphin and we went <laughs> over the limit. I know for a fact. Like I said, ankle deep in dolphin. And that was when I got hooked. Like that moment, I can remember, I remember throwing the jig to this day and remembering the bite and just watching the whole ocean come alive with dolphin as all they were throwing live. They were throwing a little peanut bunker and stuff out to them. They were just, they were in a feeding frenzy. So, I still get excited about that. <laughs> oh, I do too. Trust me. But I, I remember that one moment forever. I think I'll, yeah. I'll remember my deathbed. So we were there for five days. So to give you a little summary then, like the next, we went in and we caught all the dolphin. They sold the dolphin back to the guy at Odenstock, which I know is illegal back then, but they did it anyways. So what you got to do, you know, and the guys at Odens were really nice. And and so we next day we go out to the 100 Fathom line and we drop for grouper just between the 230 and 280 rock. Right. So first time I ever used electric reels, we're out there, you know, 600 feet of water using those little 612 electromates and we're catching, you know, 15 pound grouper. Next, next day we go out, troll 230 rock, catch two blue marlin. It was that week was just, it changed my life. I mean, it really did, you know, besides my children and my wife, it might have the most impact on me I ever had in my entire life. Just that one week of fishing, we saw dolphin grouper. We, we, we had amberjack on the tower. I dove on the tower that, that week. I and mean, we just yeah, saw that's so, pretty cool. It was, I, the whole week was just insane. They, I was a 20 some year old kid. These guys are in their fifties. They just were teaching me about the ocean. You know what I mean? And they were enjoying it and they took me everywhere and showed me everything I wanted to see. So I, I, that really is where my my passion for Carolina boats started because I walked the dock at Odin's and saw what was down there. I just I was mesmerized by the shape of the boats. And then also just the 
obsession with getting myself out in the ocean. And that really where, where it started. So that's how basically eight to 24, 25, that was my world. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. That's uh, it is pretty neat. It's definitely certain moments. I feel like everybody can refer back to that really got them super hooked on fishing. Uh, that's a heck of a week of fishing you had. <laughs> it was. And it was, I've never been able to do it since. It's funny because we go back <laughs> for like five years. You know, I tell you, it's more basically every every year we would go back two or three times a year and rent the same house. And now with me and my best friend, and we never had those days. We had plenty of days where we caught bailers and we dived through the tower. We never had, and I didn't, I didn't know where the numbers were to do the group of fishing, anyways. But basically, <laughs> we caught we caught a lot of bailers and we caught some dolphin and we saw the guys, you know, working the weed lines and stuff. And we would do that every year. We never had the blue marlin days. Um, yeah, that day. Yeah, so, it's definitely uh it's pretty crazy how good it's gotten lately. It has down there yeah. in that little section between the yeah. two. Yeah. Pretty Absolutely. cool. I mean, I, I, I wish I, I always come back like right during that time, but yeah, you know, I can only do so many things in a year. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to spend a month there, but uh, yeah. I think it'd be worth it. If you could get the right group of guys and you spent that sort of Hatteras to Moorhead, I think you could have a, a great time blue marlin fishing. Yeah. My, my issue is I'm already away from home long enough yeah, yeah. and try to get this baseline down a little better to be home more <laughs> and still be able to fish. If I can fish at home, I should be home. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's kind of where I'm at now. I've, as much as I'd love to spend a month down there and just try to get blue Marlins. <laughs> you got the boat for it to travel though. I mean, that's right. You, you're in a good situation. Yeah. I still, still get to do, I mean, shoot this year. I'm Bahamas and DR. I cannot complain. Yeah, no, no, so, right, so that took you up to about 20, 24, 25. Yep. What, what came after that for you? So, you know, I, I got a wife and got one of those things called kids and kind of settled down a little bit. And uh, I was I was actually running an automotive shop um, where I worked on cars, kind of supporting my fishing habits. Um, I had a couple boats in there. I had a 26 Glacier Bay and a 31 Riber Runner. And I, then I got a 31 Contender. And right around when that happened, I kind of figured, okay, it was time to do something else. So I actually went back to school and got a degree in software engineering. And okay. I took a year and a half off school, off work. Uh, I actually took a little restoration project for a little boat yard called Gibson Island Boatworks. And it was a 25 makeup. So I knew if I could do that restoration project over one year, I could also then be in school at night and, you know, and kind of balance it too. As one was going to be my one year career and one was going to be my, my going back to school. So what happened was I hated school uh, and I hated software engineering. I hated a cubicle, hated all of that. So I ended up get, having a really good relationship with the guy that owned Gibson Boatworks after, you know, doing this restoration on the 25 Mako. And he basically asked me to come be the operations manager. And I said, well, I just went back to school, you know, to get this degree. I, I'm not happy in the degree. My wife told me that I would not be happy doing this. I need to go get a job doing something that I'm passionate about. And so that's what I did. So I took the Great job. Advice. It was, and I can't complain, you know, and she, she pointed me in the right direction. So I took the job as the operations manager. It was a very low pay job because I didn't have any experience in it. I was just really experienced in life. You know, I could fix anything, take anything apart, build anything, but I didn't have the, the time in a, a boatyard managing. So I told him, look, I'll give it one year. You know, if after one year, I want to make X. And he said, okay, no problem. So we kind of worked through it. And within like Two or three years, we had we built this amazing crew. So, Gibson Island Boatworks is a private yacht yard, um, private island right north of Annapolis. Uh, it's kind of like Nantucket almost, gated community going through oh, a wow. causeway. It's pretty neat, yeah. So, 
basically what we had was we had all these customers that were kind of held captive because they couldn't take their boat anywhere because they all lived in DC or Philadelphia and they just came here during the weekend. So we had to maintain their boats to perfection and they had the money to do it. So what it allowed us to do as a crew was to grow and learn and understand yacht maintenance at a very high level. Well, as we got better, some of the members actually kind of embraced us and said, hey, we want to do some refits. So we had, and none of it was really sport fishing, but it allowed I was me to say, what kind of boats? Because, you know, Chesapeake Bay, you never know what it's going to be. It's all kinds of stuff. It was, yeah, but it was mainly all sailboats. The refits were all really on sailboats and okay. a lot of world cruising sailboats. So we had some customers that came to us that were you know, members of the island, but wanted to sail around the world. So 35 Island Pack is a very robust you know, sailboat. We ended up putting multiple fuel tanks in it. We put large inverter and battery bank systems in it so they could live completely standalone and run all this refrigeration for long periods of time. And so we did that project. That was one of our first ones we did, sent it around the world. And they sailed all the way around the world, all the way back. And That's pretty cool. It was pretty neat. You know, and it, what didn't, it wasn't applicable to what I do now as much, but it was, it was more or less understanding, you know, you have to meet certain criteria from a safety standpoint and understanding you know, how important it is to make sure that everything's done right the first time. So they right. were not going to have to deal with an issue during the trip, you know, that kind of evolved into, okay, well, these customers were successful with this refit that the yard did. Let's give them some more. So we ended up doing about three or four of those. One of them was a 55 Trentella that customer came to us and said, I want everything that's going to go bad in the next 10 years replaced now. So that kind of gave, I know, that's how wow. they work. <laughs> know. Okay, well, let's see. Every pump, every light, every mm. generator, it's all getting replaced. We were yes. we basically put a million and a half dollars into the boat, almost $2 million eventually. Into this I bet boat. that can run away real fast. That <laughs> It's what he wanted, though. He wanted a boat that he had X amount of time left in his life. These are generally older people. They had okay. X amount of time left in their life, and they wanted to know during that window of time, the boat was not going to give them any troubles. And they were willing to give it to us for a year or two, to have that next 10 years. And Let me tell you, just because you replace it doesn't mean it's not going to get oh, me in trouble. <laughs> you're telling me nothing, but at least I can say we tried. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> I know firsthand. <laughs> Stuff goes bad. You're really replacing it all twice by now. <laughs> yeah, you use your boat a lot, though. The yeah, difference these people is they didn't use their boats a lot. They would come down, and that was the beauty of it, is they expected to be turnkey the moment they got there. So yeah. we would basically fuel... Holding tanks were empty. They can go out and use it for three or four days, come back. They would put it on the mooring and we wouldn't see them for four months. Oh, wow. And that's how it worked. And so it, it allowed us to get an understanding of what it took to properly maintain a yacht. Me to understand what it took to maintain a crew to properly maintain a yacht. Like we started off when I got there, it was five guys. By the time we left, it was 22. And we had shipwrights. We had everything under the sun. We had varnishers. We had fiberglass guys. We had bottom painters, travel operators, the whole deal. So... And that was kind of what took me out of the automotive world into the marine world, you know, kind of full time. And, and this was going to be my career. So um, and my wife fam family was committed to it. And it, the place was right down the street. So it was five minutes away. So it all kind of oh, worked wow. out. Well, lots of lots of positives. Lots of positives. Yeah. Almost like it was meant to be. So the next part of this is while I was there was a gentleman named Mike Lore. So Mike Lore used to work for Buddy Davis back in the 90s. Um, and he was one of their engineers. He would kind of design and the layouts and build outs of the 37, the 47 and another F-52 or one of the other boats that he was building at the time. And he would design the fuel tanks and design all this stuff for him. So Mike 
worked at Weaver Boatworks as the operations manager there, and him and Jimmy didn't get along. So Mike was looking for a job. He lived right down the street. I knew Mike from years back. Mike said to me, hey, I need a job. So, well, I can get you a job. I need a shipwright. We needed a shipwright at the time. So he came in, and, and he started kind of helping me sort of understand what it was going to take to build a, a sport fish boat one day. Because he had all these plans in his, in his garage, all these different, you know, table golf sets and stuff just sitting there and I would go to his house every once in a while and we would hang out and be like Mike I want to build one of these I want to build a 35 to a 38 that express that I could I could use and 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 with my family it had you know C, C series Cummings in it like 450 Cummings or something in it perfect little engines for me and uh so we talked about this for probably about six months back and forth about what boat and why and and then one morning he called me on phone and says hey craigslist has one of my jigs for sale it's in in virginia beach i said what do you mean he goes well i built a boat and we built the hall flipped it and the guy took the hall with the jig in it and the jig is now on craigslist I said interesting he said you should, we should go down and take a look at it okay so we drove down to virginia beach and looked at the jig laid it all out in the front yard and and there was a jig there so that was kind of how the the boat came about evolved actually the boat okay. came from basically me meeting Mike at Gibson Island out of nowhere, Mike needing a job, then us talking about a 34 to 38 or whatever it was. And then the 45 jig just popped up out of nowhere, like literally <laughs> out of nowhere. And it was cheap too. It was like $1,500 for the pile of plywood. And I was like, oh, wow. I know. I was like, I don't really know how to do any of this. He's like, look, I've seen what you've done in the past. You can do this. I know you can do this. Just, just buy it. And what was he, the the hall design based around? Was there a, a basis for it or is it kind of a, a one-off of its own? So what happened was there's been three boats have been built off this design. There was one that was the, let's see, I remember all the names. It was the Problem Child. The original one was, oh, there was a white one up in, in I don't remember the exact name of it. Uh, there's a couple of different names. It's been through a couple of names since. There were three okay. boats that were built off of it. The original one he hand drew Built the boat. The boat was successful. Had 3176s in it. Boat fished well. The second one, a, another customer had came to him and said, I want that same boat, but I want the boat to go through naval architecture first, um, weights and balances. So he sent the plans, the table of offsets off to Donald Blunt. He changed the design a tiny bit, widened up the beam in the bow, I think, to give a little bit more you know, living space. I think Mike shrunk it back to give the ride back a little bit. So they yeah. kind of messed with the, the the chine line a little bit. But other than that, it was basically the same boat that Mike had originally designed. So the weights were off, you know, Donald Blunt came back, it was like 46,000 pounds. Mike was like 41,000 pounds or whatever. And it ended up being a 41,000 pound boat. Okay. Other. So basically there was three boats built off of it. Um, the one that, that I had the jig out of is sitting in Moorhead City. It's a blue hall. That was originally the problem child. Uh, Buzzkill was another one, which is out of uh, Cape May. I think it was yeah, a yellow boat. Avalon, boat. yeah. I've I, I actually fished on that boat before. Same exact time. I have that jail now. He just he just stepped up and got a sixty-one Garlington. That's uh, what I thought. That boat's right? yeah. <laughs> it, it's a great boat. Yeah, rides really well. I mean, I like it. It's a pretty boat too. We I had that same haul, except he he didn't put an intermediate guard on that. I think he was just strapped for time. So. um but so that's kind of how the hall evolved into my possession or jig evolved into my possession. It was just okay. basically getting the job at Gibson Island out of nowhere, meeting Mike Lore, Mike Lore evolving into being, you know, a good friend, Mike saying, Hey, I can help you build this boat. Luckily I have a pretty big backyard. I got an acre. It's a you know, hundred feet wide. We were able to stick the boat in the back, ended up with a little tent 
kind of went from there. And that's uh-huh. <laughs> how long did it take you to, to lay up the hall? I mean, I know you're doing this like on the side, but so, I have a pretty good timeline. So it took me eight months to build the hall to glass. Okay. And then it took me 14 months to take it from a wooden hall to a flippable hall. Which means I put and I did it all upside down. I put the shaft logs in. I put the strut tube or um, the uh, uh, rudder post tubes and all in. I put intermediate guards on. I I did it all. I put it. I made the all the way to paint to finish paint as a haul before I flipped it. Luckily, a guy named Brian Champlin who works for Alex Hill became a good friend of mine. He basically told me he said, "Richard, do as much as you can to that boat before you flip it because once you flip it, most people." want to flip the boat right away because they get their second draw on the build you know so now you get your second chunk of money yeah i know one giving me money so i basically said i know i'll take it as far as i possibly can before i flip it so it took me two years to get to the boat flippable and then basically two years and one month to be exact um that was quite the deal the common misconception a lot of people have is you think you're building your own boat it's it's cheaper than buying a used one definitely not the case (laughs) not not to the level when i get done the boat i'll have will be much more valuable than a new one or if i just want to get a boat i should go buy buzzkill right now and i would have saved myself a ton of money and time no doubt about it yeah true there's so many things i want to ask you so like you're using that same haul so that means you didn't add in um prop pockets right there a reason you didn't want to have that drawn in or do you care about that? There's a lot of people. I mean, that's the way everybody's kind of going now. I, I don't think so. And I think I didn't want to change the running bottom of the boat. And because yeah. that was, that is where I could do something really bad. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of things I yeah, can do on the boat. You know what I mean? That I can make the boat an express, a walk around. I can make it this, I can make it that, but I can't change from the chine down. Now, I did change a little bit, and there was a guy named uh, Bill Schwab from Lightning Yachts who became a good friend of mine, built uh, White Lightning. He uh-huh. told me that I would benefit from having reverse chines on the boat versus external spray rails, and I understand that. So I built a an internal, you know, blocked-in, 11-inch wide reverse chine starting aft, and then it tapers to nothing up at the top of the chine line. All right. So it's underneath the boat, almost like a traditional boat versus an external spray rail. Okay. I did that because I didn't want to have to worry about blocking if I got hauled on travel lift. That's really nice because I'm let me tell you that's that's annoying. You carry around blockers, you have to carry. <laughs> yeah, around depending on uh, I haven't been. I stopped. I had them in the bottom of my hall for a long time, and I've never used them because right. everybody haul out has them, and they kind right. of want you to use theirs. It sounds like most times, but but I. I'm usually the one that ends up hopping in the water. So, no, and sometimes it's 50 degree water, depending on what time of year it is. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's just kind of, it's nice to not have to worry about it. That was a smart move. Yeah. And then I have little things like that. I've been, I've been blessed that I have people like Bill Schwab and, you know, John Duffy's been heavy involved in it. You know, Mike Lore, all these people that have experience in boats have guide guided me. They haven't physically put their hands on the boat a lot, but they've guided me in doing the right things now while I have the opportunity. Um, That's what's cool about our industry. It absolutely. Or helpful. Yeah. It's pretty People cool. Will help you. If, if you're going to put forward the effort, you know, every, everybody's willing to help. Yeah. They you know, see anybody, anybody cool anyway. <laughs> yeah. I will. So, and so, yeah, I didn't really want to change the bottom much. I kind of was fixed to the length. You know, I could have stretched the jig a little bit. I was told the boat could have been up to 50. 
Mm -hmm. I made it four to six. I could have put an inch or two between stations and stretched the jig out a little bit. Uh, I do feel like after looking at it, the boat could use a little more bow. I think the entry angle could be a little, you know, deeper, you know, a little tighter angle. Um, and, it, but you got, it's a 45 foot boat. So you're going to yeah. give up, you know what I mean? So, right. Well, what made you choose to build a bridge boat as opposed to an express boat? To be honest with you, that was one of the hardest decisions. So I really wanted to build a walk around. I kind of wanted oh, to wow. build a walk around so you would walk between the house and then you would have steps right at the front of the engine vents. You would just kind of like step up onto the foredeck so you could at least fight fish and deal with dock lines on the sides of the house. But you would have a different idea. It was a different idea, but the, I kept on looking at all the boats that had the walk around and it really just, it took the house and made it so small and it really took it from being a, a boat that you could actually stay on to something you can just get in and get out of. Especially that at that size. I mean, at that size. Foot. Yeah. I was back and forth. That was a really hard decision. I took two years to make that. I started thinking about the day I built the start of the boat and I knew it was like, what am I going to build when it comes to flipping it? And I had the whole four deck on it and I still hadn't decided. It was basically, uh -huh. okay. I either got to build a house now or I got to build a small house and build, you know, walkways up the sides or I got to build an express boat. And that was the other option. So right. That's oh, so what, what engines are you going to put in there? Which, so which have engines. What, what do you expect to hit for cruise speed, fuel burn, <laughs> top, top haul speed, what, all that. Let's go through all that. I don't know for sure. I can tell you that the boat had 3196s and it was an express boat. It would make 28, 29, not cruise, 34 in the corner. Um, I have C12 acerts. So another yep. strange thing that happened for me was I was on the Hall Truth, which is a website I'm, I'm very much a part of. Uh -huh. And the guy popped up on one day and just said, I've got two C12 caterpillars I'm pulling out of a boat. I'm repowering with man's and uh, really, really good number, really good number on. So, wow, this is the whole thing. So I came with wiring harnesses, controls, Palm Beach levers, the whole deal. So it's in, it was, the boat was uh, actually in uh, the Gulf. The guy had just bought it, older gentleman, wanted the whole boat to be refitted. So he took it to Whitaker, and I had old samples done beforehand. He ran the boat 14 hours from the Gulf to Whitaker, pulled up at Whitaker. I was there with my truck and trailer, and I yanked the engines out myself. Took That's every awesome. That's a good it was. it was for me because now I knew I got every piece, every nut and bolt and screw and lever and, and harness, and I got yeah. the label balls that came out. Yep. So this harness plugs into this box. So I took the whole thing, we put it on a trailer and set and brought it back home. It took a week. Gonna make it install it way easier too, since you know it <laughs> all in together. Yeah. yeah. So the engines one side was a little bit, you know, had a little corrosion on it. So I brought them back and had them sandblasted and core spec primered them, repainted them. So they're in the garage fully assembled. A few few visits to Caterpillar. I got all new hoses, clamps, and gaskets, redid the heat exchangers. And uh -huh. so they got 2,000 hours on them. They just had a 2,000 hour service, um, ZF 325As with one and three quarter ratio. Uh, I got everything sitting there to go in the boat. I actually just got the engine beds. Another friend of mine that's actually building a 61 Billy Holton in Ocean City, he bought some engine beds that didn't work out for what he was his stringer size. So I ended up getting some aluminum uh, angles that were welded together to make engine beds. Uh huh. Right now, I'm only waiting on mounts, and then I think I'm going to go up and set the transmission and try to figure out where all that's going to go. Right. So, right. C12 Acer, seven, 715 horsepower, 2,000 hours, running takeouts. That's so, a perfect engine for that size boat. It is. It is. Yeah. It's already been built with it. The, the 3176 and 96 are all the same frame. There were just more horsepower each iteration. So, right. Uh, so I'm hoping to be able to 30-knot cruise boat. If I can make 26 in the corner, um, 
it swings a 28 by 46 wheel. So it's a pretty big wheel. If I can yeah, swing big. that boat will move. So. Yeah, no doubt. Well, what about as far as, you know, your uh, generator, what other kind of mechanicals are you putting? You want to do water maker? You want to do all that stuff? Or are you going to try to keep it super simple and not go crazy there? So I'm funding this whole thing. Uh, so that's first and foremost. So I'm uh -huh. going to keep it simple. And I know a lot of things I can... I can add things. I'm, I made sure I set the AC-DC panel up for a water maker. And I put an oversized, put 12 kW generator instead of a 9 kW generator. Right, so okay. uh, I got a phaser generator I purchased a, a couple of years ago when I ran across a few dollars. local friend of mine, you know, is a, a phaser dealer and a diesel Volvo dealer. And he got me a nice generator. So nice. Um, I got that with no water maker. I'm going to put a tube in it for an Omni, although I'm not going to put an Omni in it at this point. I'm going to yeah, just put that's, the that's a big, big uh <laughs> So yeah, price. I mean, even I'm sure it's still even doing what you do for a living. It's still uh, it's still not cheap. It, it, an Omni would cost me twenty percent of what I have in the boat. Yeah, so I have, in perspective. That's I got to put it in perspective. Yeah. I need to get first. So water maker is going to come afterwards. Omni is going to come afterwards. But everything else is getting. I was fortunate enough to get a really nice deal through Ray Marine where they supplied the electronics for the boat, um, which helped out a lot. And they've got some nice new stuff coming out. So I'm kind of I'm happy to support them. Um, yeah, all the brand new rough outriggers. I got a few 40 foot outriggers for it. Um, all the stuff that I can do now that I need to do now I'm doing, but it's going to be a simple boat. I want to keep it light. I don't want a lot of fluff inside. I want the bow to be really light so I can, you know, change the attitude of the boat based on, you know, how much water fuel I have in that forward fuel tank more than anything else. Yeah. You mentioned fuel tanks, um, earlier, we were talking about that a little bit. Basically, what was your idea? Did you do one whole fuel tank that's aft and then one forward? Or did you do two separate in the, in the aft, three aft tanks? What, I wanted, why? Why did you decide to do it the way you did so it? I originally wanted to do two. I wanted to have a companionway that you know, was between the two fuel tanks that actually allowed me to not have access to my lazarette through the cockpit. I'm not a big right. fan of having lazarette hatches because there's always water in there. If you cannot have one, it'd be great. Yeah. But then I was going to give up 150, 200 gallons of fuel. So I want the fuel. I'm The main thing I wanted on the boat was a lot of fuel, a lot of water, range, range, and range. Be able yeah. to live on the Especially range. fishing up here in the mid-Atlantic, you need a, you need range. I need the range. So More range than ever. I feel like I'm going 120 miles every day. I'm Marlin fishing now. <laughs> it's pretty crazy how far people are going. It, oh, it's what's sucks. crazy on the side note is how many customers I've had had this year had asked me about new boats because they can't tournament fish in their boats anymore. It's tough. I mean, any boat in the mid fifties or lower, I mean, it's, it's difficult. You don't have the range. I mean, yeah, hundred miles sounds like a lot, but even now, like it's, I mean, at least for the white mile and open, that's your max, but you know, for a fair amount of boats out there, it's still not really achievable, especially because you don't have the speed to, to really do it. And then if you get caught in weather, you're screwed. I mean, it's tough. It's tricky, but you know, sometimes that makes you think outside the box and leads to something <laughs> better. Now, yeah, yeah. From my experience, I've run much lesser boats and you know, growing up and starting my career, and it's pretty funny. But sometimes having handcuffs isn't a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, you're <laughs> right. No, it does. It it puts things into perspective of how you can change your 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 tactics and yeah, do things differently. Yeah, and like I've heard you say before about clearing as many you know categories. That's yeah. That, that changes your perspective. You know, I have this much range. How do I clear as many categories to really put myself back? Yeah. In the game? You know? I mean, trust me, I'd love to be the guy coming with the most flags every day, but that <laughs> doesn't make you that much money in those tournaments. <laughs> yeah, those people are, 
that's what they want to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're, they're leaving in the morning. They don't care about the money. They're, they want the flags. Yeah. It's, and it's fun. It's pure fun. It, it, and sometimes it's hard. You, it, you have, it depends on your crew and your whole crew's mindset. And, you know, a lot of, you spend a lot of money. You want to have a little bit of fun, but yeah, sometimes to win money, you got to power through and not have a whole lot of fun and fish for that, that one fish. I mean, depending on what you're doing. So it, it's a fine line to walk and, you know, obviously a lot of variables involved. Well, you know a little bit about that. Let's let's yeah. let's talk about that real quick. You had that. You had a, a win in the White Marlin Open not long ago. We did. It's 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 a it's an interesting turn of luck because I do not like tournament fishing. Matter of fact, I hate tournament fishing. I like <laughs> to be able to fish and start when I want to start and stop when I want to stop and catch as many fish as I want to catch in the way I want to catch them. Right. Kill in the ocean. That's just how I was. I was just that guy that I was taught at a very young age and. I'm better now because I understand the fishery has been impacted in the past 20 years, but I wanted to basically fill every cooler in the boat. So <laughs> tournament fishing didn't fit me. So a couple of years ago, I had a friend of mine, um, that customer had a 46 ocean, 48 ocean, uh, a guy named Randy Bode, great friend, great friend of the family. And he just kept on hounding on me. I want you to fish to white Marlin open. I want you to fish to white Marlin open. And I wasn't fishing a lot then because I was building the boats. I was taking a lot of time off to work on the uh -huh. boat. I mean, my time was coming. So, at the same time, my best friend from high school, a guy named Bob Ross, who I fished all through our younger years together down in North Carolina and out of Ocean City. And, and he had a 30 Enriquez he kept at Pirate's Cove. And he started the year before we fished together. He actually brought the boat up and didn't do well in the open. And he was the moment he left to go back to Pirate's Cove. You're going to fish the open with me next year. You're going to fish the open with me next year. And I was like, Bob, I don't like tournament fishing. So finally, about a month or so earlier, you know, Randy was asking me to fish the tournament and Bobby was asking me to fish the tournament. And every year I fished the tournament, but not in it. I would, me and my friends would just go fun fishing. You know, the year uh -huh. before, two years before that, we were at my 31 contender and we had a, I don't know how much it weighed, but it was every bit of a 12 foot long blue marlin at the 461 lump, you know, the day the white marlin opened. Like one of the days, <laughs> I always knew that one day I'm going to fish this thing. I'm going to do well because I always do well in it when I'm not in it. So, <laughs> so finally the, these two guys were trying to convince me to fish it. And I said, I'm going to fish with my best friend in the White Marlin Open and my my new good friend that I'm a customer of, a customer with, in the Huck. So we fished the Huck. That's a great tournament. I love that. It was one. a great tournament. I never fit. Now, that was one I actually liked because I liked the concept of it. it was a little I was going to say, that's, that fits more your style that you're that's, talking that's about. Great. So we went out, we killed a 161 swordfish, got third place. Nice. So, I know. And I never never wanted to finish fish tournaments at all. But, you know, I, I went out with Randy and we had a lucky day. And I said, you know, next following week is the White Marlin Open. I said, maybe we're going to have a good week. So we went out the first day and, you know, we didn't do well. We went down to the Norfolk, I think it was, one of the fish to Norfolk. And we didn't do well. Fish with all the same. We were big eye fishing. We knew mm -hmm. we were big eye fish every day from the moment we got to whatever canyon we were going to be in that day to the end. And we were not going to leave. And that's what yeah. Bobby does. Bobby is a heck of a big eye fisherman. He's down in North Carolina. He's always putting them up on the dock. So down here, we got up here and started fishing hard. First day, nothing. Second day, I think it was the second, that was third day. I'm sorry. Second day. Second day, we were down in the Washington. We were literally sitting right in front of the MJs and another boat. I forget what the other boat was. Paul Man, yellow Paul Man, right off our bow. And it was 329. And, you know, you look over at your screen and there they are sitting at 130 foot of water, stacks of them. And it was like, you hear Bobby go, they're under the boat, jig everything. So I was on the bridge because I wasn't supposed to be an angler. I hate fighting fish. I hate <laughs> fighting fish. Over fighting fish. 
Caught too many fish in my lifetime. I just want to watch. So he already had a mate that he brought up with him. So, you know, we're jigging rods. We're both on the bridge. Bang, one goes off. Bang, two goes off. Flatline goes off. Bang, three goes off. So I'm just kind of sitting up there, and two guys in the cockpit. One rod, his Bobby hands his rod down. This is there's literally 30 seconds left in the tournament. Hands <laughs> his rod down to one guy, has it on for two or three seconds, fish off, flatline fish comes off. And here I'm sitting next to the rod on the bridge. I jigged on. And I was like, oh man, he goes, This is you. He, he just so he go down, and it's you. He handed me the rod. I wasn't set up. I had, I'm, I was a little heavier then. I didn't have my stomach is a little bigger. I didn't have a belt that was set up for me. It was just a bad situation. Oh, was, man. Yeah, it's the first it 20 minutes. You're going to be dead already. <laughs> I was miserable. It was miserable. So <laughs> I, I knew we'd only had a certain amount of time. The boat's only a 22 knot boat. We had to get back to Ocean City to get the boat uh-huh. weighed in. So it took about 43 minutes. I killed that that big eye and it was i put as much heat as i could have mate was like stop putting your thumb on the line i'm like we only have a certain amount of time i've killed plenty of fish i know how much heat i can put on a fish just shut up let me get this done it was a point where i was looking back telling the guys just stay away from me let me just get this done so we can go home (laughs) i didn't think think we had a winning fish i'm a very pessimistic kind of guy i live in the world the negative side a little bit i'm like this thing ain't gonna win anything so we got in the boat and we're looking down like it's a pretty big big eye we might actually want something we got back to the the docks and and our families were there and it was like one of those last minute buzzer bangers you know and and we weighed this fish and it it was it was a placing fish and you know we were all just freaked out like yeah we that this. we're we're you know some rednecks from Pasadena that that's, have that's a, a great game. feeling at that tournament to get up on the scale and to win something it's it's a pretty cool feeling it was I I. I took up all my emotion towards not wanting to go tournament fishing was gone when, when I went up and when I went to the scale. I know I didn't matter, but when we went to the scale, it changed me. It really did. Completely different perspective. So then I was sitting there and, and, you know, and crazy as it sounds, I was, and I'm in the moment, I'm talking to the, the announcers asking me and he's like, you know, well, good luck in the restaurant. I was like, we'll be back tomorrow. And I don't know why I said that. So we left, went up to the Wilmington and we were fishing with the fleet and it was rough as could be that day. We were fishing with the fleet. You know, we wandered off and killed a 161, you know, <laughs> on a plug, you know, out of nowhere. And uh-huh. it was like, it was, it was one of those things where you don't really think it's ever going to happen to you. You know, you just don't feel like you're lucky enough. You know what I mean? And it ended up happening out of nowhere. And, and now this past year, both of them asked me to fish again and I won't, I, I I'm one and done. I went in, I won, <laughs> I got my thing. I'm like, the house is not going to win. I'm going to take my few dollars and I'm going to leave. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll fish it again when my boat's done, but not until then. I've already yeah. so. Well, let's come, let's come back to your boat Th- throughout the build. I mean, so you're looking at uh, this summer of uh, splashing it. Is that correct? I'm hoping to have it leave my yard this summer. That's the okay. goal. The goal is to get it to the marina. Um, get the bridge set on it, get the console set on it, um, and get the water line set on it. That's okay. my goal. By Christmas, I would like to see the boat roughly one year from now put in gear and be able to move around the docks. That's okay. that's my goal. So nice. and I'm not far. What's yeah. been the hardest part that you felt like was the hardest part so far? Whether it was the designing phase or the ridiculous amount of sanding and fairing you gotta do, or the painting, or just the any part of it, any particular part, setting the wires, you know, all the wire chases throughout. You'll never guess. Keeping it covered and keeping it dry. Uh, that is the hardest part because, you know, I bought a cheap 10. It was like, you know, off Craigslist or something like that. I don't know where I bought it was. It was so 
keeping it dry and keeping it in an environment where it's going to survive. Like, yeah, not having a warehouse makes it a little tricky. 100%. Building yeah. them in your backyard in a tent has been the toughest part. No, the sanding and all that's physical. Yeah. But the stressors of the boat just being outside. And I can't tell you how many times, you know, big 40, 50 mile an hour gust comes through and I've had the cover blow off the boat. <laughs> and if I'm not here and it rains, boat's full of water. You know what yeah. I mean? So like it's keeping it in, keep, keeping it watertight has been the toughest part, to be honest with you. All so, right. Uh, I mean, uh, there's always, there's always the engineering and thinking about how, where I'm going to put this or where, but I have, I have such amount of time because it's taken me so long to build a boat. I can think through those. I can reach out to people like yourself who have experience and I can mold those ideas over with other people. But the, you know, the, the hardest part is. It does help it. when you're not in a hurry. Well, I'm not it in a hurry. Will. Yeah, absolutely. Five having, and that was actually one of the things that Mike Lord told me in the very beginning. I remember when I set the jig up, he said, Richard, you're not, no one's paying you know you to do this you don't have an owner it's over top your shoulder hounding you and get it done by this date or this way or for this much right he said take your time do it the way you want to do it and when it's done it's done yeah, yeah. i'm 48 now my my goal is by 50 i started when i was 42 and a half so basically 42 and a half to 50 my 50th birthday to myself is going to be the boat that's my that's goal. pretty cool that's really awesome it's, i've been looking at it like that for about two or three years now like it looks like originally I thought it was going to take me three years and I was totally wrong. I was like, I can do this in three years. And even Mike was like, yeah, you can do this. But he was so wrong. Yeah. You so, know, in three years, if you're dedicated to that only. And you have other people helping you. Yeah. Not the labor side of it, you know, because I do everything. And my wife and family, they help me vacuum and pull peel ply and pull tape and stuff. But yeah. I mean, really, it's I do all of that, too. I mean, I'm still the guy vacuuming. If they're not available and I got to take care of an area, I got to go into work. I'll go back in that area, up, make my mess and clean up after myself and put away my Tyvek suit and put away my grinder and and do all of it. You know, did Jab I mean? help you when you glass the hall? Did you have family? Yeah, had family. The first layer of plywood, I had some friends come in, help me glue that down. Um, the, the other layers, I just kind of weaned away at night, you know, a couple uh -huh. layers here pieces there and yeah glass thing i had my wife and children they came in and we would roll out big pieces of glass luckily i've gotten really good with slow curing epoxies and i've when you mixed up this amount of epoxy you have an understanding of how to work it <laughs> no doubt a morning sun you know cold a lot of a lot of variables involved when you're outdoors with epoxies 24 <laughs> 7 i have a cooler a little igloo that's you know five feet long and you know, two feet tall, two feet deep. That's literally full of resin in the bottom where I heat resin starting in October and heat it all the way through March resin okay. and things live inside there heated year out six months out of the year for five months out of the year. You have to, it won't work. So yeah. I use curing epoxy year round so I can control the speed at which things take, you know, happen. So right. I can speed up or slow down the cure process. Well, what would be your advice to somebody that wanted to build their own boat? I mean, this is not a not something to take lightly, but I know there's definitely some people out there because I actually did a one of my first podcasts with my friend Chris. He built his own boat in Carousel. It, you know, yeah. it, and it's a great boat, really cool boat, and he definitely in, enjoys it a lot now using on the water. But I, I know he misses the build process a little bit still. But what would be your advice? Best piece of advice. Best piece of advice I have to somebody is just be willing to make the commitment because you see so many boats that are built and not finished. And I'm fortunate enough that I have, you know, a good support group. I have a bigger piece of property here that I can do it on. I have a job in the marine industry that allows me to create some connections to help 
to do it. But if you don't have that, it's just about the commitment. It really is about committing yourself to the time to getting it done. I've cut out all, most all social media. I don't watch television. I haven't picked up a remote on television in years. <laughs> I don't go to the bar. I don't watch sports. I, I just don't have time for it. I have to, I have to find three to 12 hours a day to put in that boat, depending on if it's a Saturday or Sunday or day off. But I ha every day I have to put in three hours. Every, I work every night till midnight. And I basically start when the kids go to bed at, you know, 8 30, 9 o'clock. You know, they're in bed and I'm out there every night, 365. If I can get in a full Saturday or a full Sunday or a full day off or some vacation time, I get in a 12 hour day. And that's because three hours really isn't, doesn't give you much time to get, get rolling. No, it doesn't. It, well, <laughs> 30 minutes to set up and then 30 minutes to break it down, two hours of work, really. That's right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm, I'm very good at planning, though. I always have a group of tasks that are available to me to just go out and do like right now I have wire pulled out that I'm going to run through the hard top or the overhead later uh -huh. on this afternoon. Last night I pulled out the three lengths of wire before I left made sure I had them labeled and I walked away at midnight, you know? Yeah. Um, but I'll come right back to that this afternoon and get right back on that again. Let's set up time. It, it is. It, well, because there's so many things to do. I can bounce from the engines inside the garage to working on the electrical, to going to work in the lazarette, to paint work. And, and that sort of always having a task to do. What is interesting though, is I've talked to a bunch of people about how long it should have taken me to get to where I am. So five years, roughly 2000 hours a year is what normal human beings work. I have to get where I am. It seems to be between 12 and 15,000 hours. And so wow. somehow I've created 12 or 15,000 hours of time in the past five years to get this done. Now, being that I am a mature male, I've been doing this all my life. I'm probably more efficient with every hour that I use on the boat, but versus someone that doesn't, but there, that can only be so much. Do you know what yeah. I mean? So I have at least 10,000 hours in five years. In the boat, to get wow. That's so a lot of time. Build a smaller boat. Maybe that's the best piece of advice. Build a 21-footer <laughs> before building a 45-footer. Yeah, that's yeah, that's probably not a bad idea. Then <laughs> <laughs> look back. And I wouldn't change it for the world because I've met so many people. I've gotten so many different types of industries I've gotten into. I just got certified through Seastar for Optimus Steering System. And it wasn't, it was only because of the boat. You know what I mean? That's what, I that's what Chris did too. Same thing. Correct. Exactly right. You know what I mean? So you don't realize these are the, the fringe benefits that I'm getting by doing this. The marine electronics business was kind of stemmed out of the boat. You know, it was more or less, I was really good at it when I was at Gibson Island, but it was just people saying, hey, if you're good at this, you can do this for me. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then it just kind of, I started embracing it. I kind of got away from doing mechanical work and fiberglass work. And now I do just marine electronics. So let's, let's talk about that. So that is, that is now your day job. You do marine electronics. Correct. Oh, so, and obviously from your whole story up until this point in your life, it's kind of obvious how, how it's come to be, but, but let's talk about marine electronics. Let's just start with, with the most simple of electronics. Talking, <laughs> like what are your, let's say your top three favorite platforms. This comes down to that Ford Chevy Dodge argument. I get yeah. this all the time. I love it. You all just time. that. So <laughs> people ask me, what's your favorite? I could, I could bash every one of them. I can also tell you the positive of every one of them. So currently I'm not real happy with Navico, which is Simrad, B&G, and Lowrance. I think that they're, they changed hands from the Brunswick Corporation. They're starting to outsource their, their um, tech help to third parties overseas. Those are the kind of things that get under my skin. 
Now you got guys like Faruno. I just got back from Faruno school. They're changing their whole platform to get rid of the, the awful little pigtails they had coming out of the back of their plotters to chassis yeah. connectors. So right now Faruno is going in a, a great direction. They're moving in a positive, And I see Lawrence and Navico kind of moving in a negative. My favorite platform is Garmin. Unfortunately, because Garmin is the iPhone of electronics, which it really is. Yeah. They have apps that fit everybody. They have devices that fit the entire system. You know, it's a, it's a integrated system. Whereas people like Faruno, they're, they're not willing to shake hands with anybody yet. They're, you know, Navico is not willing to shake hands on anybody. So you're kind of conformed to their charts. So if you go to Simrad, let's say you have to use CMAP charts. Well, I hope mm -hmm. you like CMAP charts, but that's the only chart you can get. You know, Garmin and Raymarine, you can get Navionics charts. Well, I like Navionics charts. They build good charts. So what's the best? I personally like Raymarine right now and Garmin currently. Last year, that I would never have told you to put a Raymarine product on your boat. And reason being is I watched them go through a whole decade of just not being on board with where the market's going. Yeah, so, not at all. Neither they went right down a hole. And I'm watching Simrad Navico start to go down that same hole again. So uh -huh. I like Garmin because Garmin likes everybody else. They want everybody to work. They got great customer service. It's just a very user-friendly, intuitive system to use. And it's designed around people using it, not engineers using it. So Raymarine's very similar. They they were bought by Teledyne which is they send rockets into space. So um, they're pretty good. You know, right. so they're on the right path. They, they've got good software now. They've got good components. They're on the right path to taking over as the number two, I think. Um, I would have to rate it basically Garmin, Raymarine, Furuno, Navico. I would have put Furuno above Raymarine last year and maybe even Navico, but that would be my top four. And it's because Garmin just works. It really does for everybody. Yeah. They're not the best radars. They might not have the absolute best sonars, but they're so close to being the best that it, all the other features that come with it outweigh what the others have, if that makes sense. Let me ask you something. There's a, you know, back before electronics have gotten as good as they have, it was pretty commonplace on a lot of boats to have Runa radar, Garmin, the chart plotter, and obviously I'm talking way back, like North Star chart plotter, or, you know, Simrad autopilot. You just, you just saw a Frankenstein of <laughs> a setup. How come that's not really a thing anymore? Is everybody stuck on aesthetics? Everything looking the same? Or it's the networking and the compatibility. So, like Garmin has their GXM54 weather module, which will only work with a Garmin. They have, they have all these devices that only work with their plotter. So you're mm -hmm. kind of trapped into using their accessories. You can't, autopilots aren't integrated between no. manufacturers. So I can't take an, an, a Garmin autopilot and use their auto guidance system on a SimRad. Or I can't use Furuno's radar on a SimRad. Now, there is a group of sport fishermen like yourself that love to take things to the extreme. So what they have done is figured out how to use a Furuno radar with a Furuno black box and in a complete Garmin suite and have Furuno dis radar displayed on a Garmin plotter. The Dem boys that just got finished was like this. Okay. There are people that are still doing it. They're kind of trying to get the best of both worlds back together. Right. Garmin's autopilot though, I will say is probably the, one of the best out there. There's no doubt about it. So their V pump smart two systems, pretty amazing. So I seriously doubt Simrad, you know, back in the day, 
was the, the main autopilot system. I see, I doubt them taking over the autopilot world again. Um, but, but it was more or less now, I think everyone looks, it looks the same and it's the integration between the accessory products. It kind of stops that and people want things just, you know, look all the same. Yeah. Like I said, clean, (laughs) it is nice nice to look at, but, and some days I'm like, Oh, I wish I had this and then that from this, this, uh, electronics manufacturer, but, uh, so I still do do that. Nobody's really nailed every facet, like, of of it all. I mean, granted, yeah. a lot of them are kind of becoming screens and it doesn't really matter because you put in the aux, but uh, it's just kind of, it was just kind of curious about that. I mean, there's, there's less reason to do that nowadays because they all do to me, from what I've seen, do a, a fair to great job of showing you what's on your sounder, showing you what's on the radar and plotting, but you know, compared to years past, but uh, I don't know, just was kind of curious why not many people mess with that anymore. You still see some people like on the Chesapeake, we have people that that redfish and cobia fish down what's called the, the gas towers down there. And I have customers down there that will have a hummingbird side scan unit and a Farunar radar. And it's because the side scan stuff from hummingbird and Simrad or Navico is much better than anybody else out there. The Garmin doesn't cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, they do. They have some really good side scan stuff. And if you if you if you're looking for that particular type of fish finding function, you're probably going to be forced to go to one of those manufacturers. So a boat I just finished a while back had Faruno radar, Faruno plotting, and Simrad side scan. Like that was his goals is to have that side scan fish finding function. He had a B170 high five B17 hot five high wide, and then he had their side scan stuff two side scan transducers on each side of um, the engines. So that okay. yeah, great. He loves that system. Um, but he knew when he wanted to find the birds to go fish, he had to have that Fruno radar. So does make a big difference. It does, it, it does. You know, it's funny. This is like a side note. My old Simrad radar. Um, I put in all new, you know, the Evo threes, everything new when I got the yeah. boat and yeah. it was compatible with my old, radar and then i finally you know I, I started to do the upgrades and eventually it be it made my i couldn't backdate the yep. software so it ended up ruining my radar but with that radar i can mark sailfish birds from six miles away in grenada in four foot seas i think it was so dialed in what why is that even like the old Furunos were incredible the new Furunos are still great too, but like the, I, I went from using old Furunos when I got on the Paul Mann boat to using, you know, a new Garmin, and I hated it. It was terrible. So, I'll say this: they, you know, everyone feared being zapped by your radar, so they went to a solid state radar. About like your Halo is a solid state radar, uh-huh. and it changed the, the way it used to be called magnetron radars. So, so that, now the Halo won't it won't zap you. No. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's a, it's a digital radar. It's a non-magnetron radar. They say you shouldn't stay in front of them, but it's nothing like it was. Like you can put cameras and stuff in front of them. You don't a GPS sensors. You don't fry okay. things. In. So, but they don't work nearly as well. No. Now there's an argument to bringing back. Like Furuno still has a a magnetron and a solid state radar. Garmin just came out with the XD3, which bringing back another magnetron radar after already having solid state radars. People do believe that the magnetron radars have the ability to detect small or target detection, small birds, things like that, way better than the solid state. Stuff. I will vouch for that. That's why when I was at Furuno school, there was a guy asked, why are you still making, you know, magnetron radars? He said right off the bat, because you guys need them to find birds. 
So, and that's why they're still making. So it's now there's other like the solid state we I mentioned to you about Doppler and solid state that allows tracking of objects coming to and from you in all directions. So basically, if you have a vessel coming at you, it's in red, a vessel leaving you, it's in green. So there is advantage to solid state radars. Don't get me wrong. It's just, huh. it's, it's not the most high performance when doing small target detection at far, far, far distances. Sure. But it has a lot more integration with it, I guess you could say. Uh, yes. Okay. It's modern. It's the new modern. Yeah. Radar. I mean, it's, that stuff is cool and all, but I want to find birds. <laughs> old, old stuff was better. It really was. Something else I really want to ask you about too. I mean, we'll we'll save on these sonars for later. But you mentioned how back when you worked in the boat yard, you um basically were setting up battery systems that could run refrigeration for a long period of time. Now it's there's some crazy battery options out there now. I'm actually kind of helping consult on a a new boat build right now, and he's thinking about putting in a whole whole battery bank. To, instead of a generator and a big reason for that is is also space and maintenance because where we can fit a generator isn't ideal and batteries you could but it what are the upsides and downsides of these new battery systems that can potentially run everything on a 48 like say a 48 50 foot boat as long as you're smart about how you use it and engines because they're outboards can keep it juiced up it's pretty so, great. Uh, what are what are the upsides? What are the downsides from from what you're learning? So I was fortunate enough when I worked at Gibson Island to meet a guy named Bob Campbell. Bob Campbell owned Marine Electric Systems out of Annapolis. His specialty was long distance sailboats and trawlers. So one of the things that we did what at Gibson Island was set up a lot of boats for this sort of concept, and we wanted no generators and sailboats don't generators. So. You're trying to put as much battery bank in it as you can, much capacity. And then you're trying to put an inverter in to take that DC power and make AC power. So well, what, what kind of batteries? Let's, let's start there. What, so, what are the best kind of batteries for this that you've seen? Oh, boy. So, <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, personally, up until a few years ago, it was all AGMs, absorbed right. glass, which is a lead battery, a sealed lead battery, lead acid battery. All, all batteries are lead acid, really, except for... Even, um, you know, gel batteries, except for lithium. So we used AGMs forever. And I was, uh, the, I think that's the best route to go. If you don't have the ability to control lithium batteries properly. So lithium batteries are a bit like the wild, wild west. A lot of them are built overseas. There's new manufacturers popping up every day, but there's no real regulations on how they're built and, and, why they're going to charge at a certain rate in a certain way. So charging profiles become the most important thing. So let's say in your outboard that you're talking about and you're not going to put a generator in it, you you can, if you can't put the amps back in that you're taking out of the battery bank, look at a battery bank as a fuel tank. It's mm -hmm. just full of amps. Right. So if you, if you take them out for your electronics and your autopilot and your trolling motor and all this stuff, but you don't have the ability to put them back in, it doesn't matter. So... In your case, your alternators have output X, you know, say, let's say 50 amps per side, say three engines, you're at 150 amps. That's in perfect world efficiency. That means the alternator's cool. It's running at the proper RPM in order to create that 50 amps because at idle, it's probably only going to create 10. So you right. got to keep that in mind. So now at 10, you're putting out 30 amps. So 
you just have to remember that whatever battery you and I'll get back to batteries in a second, whatever battery you're going to use, you got to be able to put the amps back in that you take out, whether you put them on when you're underway or you put them out back at the dock, you got to put them back in there. Traditional lead acid batteries allows you to cycle the battery from 100% to 50%. Anytime you go below 50%, you're starting to degrade the battery to shorten their life expectancy. Now, lithium came out a few years ago, the new greatest thing in batteries. Well, lithium allowed us to cycle from 100% to about 10%. So it gave you a chunk of the batteries that you never had access to before. So you used to have, say, a 500 amp hour bank. Now you can go down to 250 amp hour bank because you've got more capacity within those right. same amp. So, but the problem with lithium is, is every lithium battery has a different charging profile. And the chargers have not caught up to lithium yet. So what they're doing is because there's so many different charging profiles for lithium, they're basically just adapting lead acid chargers to lithium batteries. Uh, so I, know, I believe lithium will not be around in five more years. There's going to be a new battery technology that's going to take over above and beyond that at the rate at where we're going. So this is why I'm wondering about where the charging thing is going. So if you don't have chargers that can properly charge lithium batteries on your boat, you have no business having lithium batteries on your boat. You have to have lithium settings where your charger has been converted to a lithium battery charger in order to do that. Um, it's it, the programming is very similar to lead acid, except you know the the charge duty and, and absorption times are higher because the way the, the lithium can take tremendous amount of amps in and out. So a, a project that I just finished has eight Battleborn batteries in it, roughly 2,000 amp hours, and has 2,700 watts of solar on the roof. It's a 55 Krogan trawler that's going to go down to Kearsall area, actually. Oh, cool. So he wants to be able to run five refrigeration systems between refrigerators and freezers, run his washer and dryer. He has a 35 amp constant draw on the boat. So literally there's 35 wow. amps in all the banks. Two inverters that are 5,000 watts each stacked on top of each other in parallel to make a 10,000 watt unit so sorry serious 10,000 watts here in unit so he has all this power lithium is the only way we can do what we do with these guys you know days so you don't have to run his generator at all between the solar will make the power during the day to put the amps back in during the day he's pulling the amps out and night he's going into a negative day he's going into a positive so okay. it is lithium i like battleborn if i were me i would not stick with any manufacturer that does not have a good tech support <clears throat> you have to have people that understand what you're doing and explain to them why you're doing what you're doing and help you get through that. There's a lot of circuit protection, which I think is super important. People don't take into consideration at all anymore. There's a lot of circuit protection involved in lithium batteries because they can discharge so fast. You could literally take five, 600 amps out in a couple seconds and just, oh, wow. so, you know, you, you have to make sure that you, you're protecting a boat. My biggest thing on a boat, and I was taught this by my mentors at Gibson Island is, you can't step off of a boat when it's on fire. You step into the water and more yeah. likely you're going to die. If you're in your car, your car catches fire, you step out in the road. Your house, you walk outside. Your boat, you step into the water. So what is it about lithium batteries that, that make them so susceptible to being a, a, a fire hazard? What is it so, compared to other batteries? Well, they have a, an internal BMS, a battery management system. So they're actually a little device inside that's monitoring amps in and out. And because they can charge so fast, they can get really hot. And they can, they also, you know, in the really cold situations, they actually don't output. So I had a customer that I did a boat for, they took it to South Carolina. They were a little late leaving for the year. 
and they went out one morning and they had no house bank. Well, their batteries were at 31 degrees and they said, no more output. We're good. So, so there's the disadvantages from a fire standpoint. There was talks of some batteries. This was five, six years ago that went to a thermal overload where they just basically melted down and went right through the bottom of the boat. Whoa. Fiberglass into the ocean, thermal melting. Now this oh was, a I know this to happen down in, in, in South Pacific somewhere or something on a sailboat when lithium first came out, the BMSs are in place to stop that. So I don't necessarily think lithium is dangerous if properly installed. Okay. I think that's, it isn't necessarily lithium's more dangerous it has the potential to be more dangerous if not properly installed because of its ability to take amps in and takes out amps out so fast. Okay. Whereas the acid can't do that. So how about mounting them? Um, you still need proper air circulation for lithium versus uh lead battery or how does that work? What's the difference? I, there? I believe in circulation for both. So I'm a proponent of putting a piece of three quarter inch PVC whiteboard shaped into a U that will kind of just sit between the batteries. It allows the cases of the batteries to expand. I'm sure if you look at any battery that comes out of a boat, it's swollen up on the sides. Oh yeah. That's, you couldn't get out of it. So anywhere that you can allow the heat to get out of them, both lead acid and lithium. Mounting, I always go back to ABYC certifications. I yeah. carry master ABYC certification. I believe that we need to follow those rules for a reason. So one of the things I've been involved in is some few court cases. I wasn't involved, but I was brought in as a third-party advisor. Uh -huh. Courts don't know anything about boats. Judges don't know anything. They're immediately going to reference the one and only Bible we have, which is American Boating Yacht Council. So if you're going to touch your boat's electrical system, you need to know that Bible. Because if something bad happens, the insurance company is going to use that Bible to make the decisions. Oh, they'll insurance. find it, too. They'll find it. That's <laughs> what I mean. So you need to make it right. And I think that is very important for people to understand. So mounting, follow ABYC standards. The battery can't move more than a half inch with 90 pounds of load, you know, port starboard, up, down, left, right. Huh. No difference. The beauty of lithium, it's much lighter. You know, there's there's value in that. Um, the, the charge times, like I said, are much faster. But all the stuff that it comes to peripherals, the circuit protection, the mounting, the cabling, wire sizing, Follow ABYC standards. Great advice. Very great absolutely. advice. And I, I work with getting a good survey when you get a boat can't hurt either for that kind of stuff. So absolutely. Yeah. I, on survey, electrical we survey would be a smart idea. Not just engine, not just boat, but electrical survey. And and it's something that I actually didn't do. Luckily, the survey I had was uh, very helpful with that stuff. And I, I had questions, but uh, you know, still having somebody that does it like you for a living. It, really good idea especially if you're buying a used boat the the people don't understand that you know a surveyor's really got their hands tied and you you know this because you've been doing this long enough you oh, give yeah. them one day to go look at a boat whether it's 25 feet or 60 feet and you can only do so much in that day there's only so many things you can find i've heard you say it on the podcast before where you're always chasing legacy wires i see that all the time because somebody goes in and cuts this off adds something new and they don't they don't label it they don't do anything with it, it just sits there as a dead wire i was on the yeah, they might not even put a thermal cap on <laughs> it. Just like, what is this? Like, where do you go? <laughs> no, that's, that's definitely great advice. And, and let's face it, we're trying to save our investments here and, and also be safe on the water. And like you said, fire on a boat, a scary thing. And I've been in that situation twice, once offshore and once the dock. And 
luckily the one offshore we were able to get out quick generator electrical fire and then wow. one on my boat we were at the dock but even though you're at the dock it's not so easy on the dock when you're your dock lines are singed <laughs> it happens so fast it's so yeah. fast and you it don't does. react you know and it just you pray that you're or you're a flight guy not a flight guy and that's all you yeah. can pray not about that yeah guy. that's a, that's a good point too let's talk about omni now you're, you're doing installs i mean we can't talk about it too much from the fishing standpoint considering i've only been on a couple boats that have had it and have yeah. really used it but from an installer's view let's talk about the differences between a furuno the Simrad SY50 and the MAQ from what you've seen, what you've heard and what you've done. What's the differences? And we don't have to say which one's better than the other because it's not fair, but (laughs) you can hint the way you want to hint. One thing I think a lot of people understand there's two different types of retractable sonars. There's a searchlight or a sector scanning and an Omni. So Omni means like if you took the bottom of a basketball and you cut it off, and it was the whole bottom of the basketball with had little tiny transducers in it. And it spent sensing out one beam all at once, all at once, omnidirectional all times versus sector or searchlight, which both most all these manufacturers make a searchlight or a sector version basically is a transducer mounted on gears that spins through 360 degrees and can also articulate vertically so it can look off to the side or straight down. So I've installed both. I actually installed a, a sector scanning um, searchlight in uh, I think it was a CH five hundred or CH eight hundred CH five uh, five hundred in a thirty six k porn um, okay. stuffed it in there. It's the same tube as an Omni. They're same eight inch tube, same flange. What, what's the price price point difference? Just so people. So, so we're talking about an Omni. Let's say installed roughly hundred hundred twenty five thousand dollars. A sector scanning or a searchlight type sonar, $25,000. Huge difference. And they both will perform the same task if you're willing to focus on the searchlight. Because the searchlight, what happens like a radar, you know, it spins around and all of a sudden you lose an object in the radar and you have to retarget that object. Well, an Omni will remain on the screen at all times, whereas a searchlight, when it spins around, will disappear until it comes back and hits it again. And I've had people that are plenty successful with searchlights. I mean, the Coden, the 6,000 people have caught a lot of fish on that. So from a manufacturer-specific, say, Omni, Furuno, SY50, which is Simrad's uh, Omni, and then MAQ. So what I've found over the years is the Furuno, which was the first one I ever installed, which is true Omni, was very robust, tried and true Furuno, very ship-type equipment, meaning very heavy, very bulky and just very well-built, very simple and well-built, typical Furuno stuff. About a year after the Omni became really popular, of course, Simrad had this stuff, but they just came out with their new SY50, which was a PC-based version. So unlike the Furuno, which is more analog to a degree looking by its boxes or very primitive computers, mm-hmm. the new SY50 has a computer the size of you know your iPad, very small computer. What I don't like about it was, is there's two parts to the Omni. There's a processor and then there's the computer. In the SY50, they took the processor and they put in the tube. It's actually part of the transducer now. So if you do have some sort of compromised transducer, you have to buy the entire system. So, oh, wow. All right. So it's basically all or nothing. Whereas the Furuno, you can buy the transducer, you can buy the processor, and you can buy the computer all separately. You know, Each one's $20,000, whatever the number might be. 
versus the Simrad where you buy the transducer, it's, you know, like a $50,000 transducer because it has so much electronics in it. I don't like that about the Simrad. Simrad is well, has a, a different frequency range. So the, the Omni Furuno is 85 um, hertz, whereas the Simrad is a multi-frequency, but it's only between 54 and 60 hertz. So the middle is 57. I'm not saying one's better than the other, but I was told that the 85 was picked because it was the perfect balance between bait and pelagics. Whereas the lower frequency seems to be more targeted towards seeing bait. Lower the frequency, the more it penetrates the water deeper, but you don't get as better a turn. That was the difference between the frequency size. Right. Whereas the MQ has um, multiple frequency. I think they have like a 20, like a 60 and a 90. So they have a middle ground. I didn't like the the MAQ's controllers. It feels very 70s-ish with like a joystick and like a button sort of thing. <laughs> Whereas the Furno feels like a traditional pad that Furno has with a rotary ball and tilt and range and whatnot on it, and very functional. The Simrad was is this is one of the things I, I I do and don't like about the Simrad. It's kind of funny. So in order to make the Simrad work, you have to have all these small accessories, little USB converters and splitters and digital switching boxes and all these. So when you buy the kit, you get three boxes of Simrad stuff, and then you get a box of just random stuff bought off of Amazon. You know, because it's all these weird, like I said, I need a 35-foot 2.0 USB cable to run the MK3 okay. controller bridge down to the computer. So, whereas Furno is all, you buy the kit, you get all the harnesses. The only thing you don't get is an HDMI to VGA converter on the Furuno. Everything okay. else. It, they're all different, if that makes sense. You know, the, the Furuno is very tried and true, very robust, very functional. I was told the 85 hertz by John Duffy was picked because it, or used because it's the best balance between bait and pelagics. The Simrad is very new school, very computers, uh, easier to install without a doubt. No doubt it's easier to install because of it. A lot of plug and play stuff. Smaller they can also run off of straight DC power too, correct? Correct. You can run a straight DC Don't power. Don't need to have AC power generator. Yeah, but you can with the Omni too. So the Omni, okay. they make an AC DC rectifier that, that Furno okay. sells or you can get one from Bitcoin or something. So you can run the Omnis off DC as well. Okay, um, It's a little bit more Kind of, you know, convoluted, but you can do it. Um, you know, here's what I can tell you. I like the Omni because it's Furuno. I like it because I've seen so many people use it. I've had so many people tell me it works well. The few SY50s, and there's not a lot of them out there, were are being used and being successful. Charlie Prayer on the Sushi, who I installed that one in his boat, he won mm -hmm. the Big Rock last year with it. Tell you right off the bat, targeted that fish with the uh, with this SY50. Does it work? Yes. Does it work as good as the Furuno? I don't know. The MAQ, I personally, as I was saying earlier, I think it was kind of a fill-in when there was just a shortage of Furunos. Do, do I think it'll work? Yes. But if they're the same price, I would not even think about buying an MAQ over a, a Furuno. You know, right. Just, right. Um, you know, How Furuno about stabilization? The one thing I've heard a lot that is an issue with the Furuno versus the other two is it doesn't have its own stabilization. So you need to have a boat that's either super stable or your fishing calm days or you need a gyro yes it, it helps so the funny thing about Furunos, it does have stabilization if you if you ask them what uh -huh. it has is you point the boat in the direction of the target that you're looking at you hit the stabilize button and it kind of it kind of fixes that direction a little bit but if you turn the boat 180 degrees stabilization is completely off okay. so it's kind of a makeshift stabilization that's taking uh -huh. place inside the computer if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, so 
I have it at the Floreal, and then I guess they don't fish a lot of you know really nasty days. The Floreal didn't have a, a sea keeper in it or a gyro, and he never really complained about that. I haven't gotten that complaint much. I think the people that do understand the stabilization concept understand understand you have to point the boat in a direction and then hit stabilization on the Furuno versus the other ones. It's 360 degrees. It's always trying to stabilize. Oh, yeah. But I do know that the stabilization with and without it has an effect on, on how well it works. Yeah. See, I've told, been told all kinds. Of, I did the one in the Playmate. So I did the Omni in the Playmate. I was told that if you put one in the front of the boat, that it won't work very well. Well, his is all the way up in the bow. When it comes through the inlet, like you see pictures of it coming through Ocean City, I can see the tube. I can see the fairing block I put in there. He doesn't uh -huh. complain a bit. I actually think to a degree, if you think about it, it might work better because you're going to have less interference and noise from the running gear by putting that. Because that's one of the biggest things when you ask them, where are you putting it at? I'm going to put it here. Well, what is close to that? Is running gear or another transducer close to it? Yes. Well, let's try to move it away from that. So we put his all the way up in the bow. His is like in his V-berth you know, under his bunk. And, oh, wow. and great. so I, I think there's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of unknowns, but you know, there, bottom line is it works. I mean, it really does. And I'm not trying to talk to anybody. <laughs> get no doubt about it. Just the, the ability to be able to see, you know, parallel flat plane to the bottom of your boat out, you know, 200 feet, give me 200 feet. I'll take yeah. 200, feet, let alone a thousand, you know, yeah. that's, that's a huge game changer because we're used to a cone that literally is under our boat that at, when it leaves the boat's tiny, you know, we don't yeah. see the things that are 10 feet off the, there could be a boat running down your chine. You don't even see it. You know what I mean? <laughs> True. So, you don't, and, but that Omni allows you to. So it is pretty, pretty amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm curious to see uh, what they come with, you know, for the next, the next uh, round of Omnis and the upgrades they make. I believe it's coming. I believe that there's a, a new one probably going to come from Fern. I think Ray Marine Teledyne is going to come out with one too. I've heard. I've heard there's one in Florida right now being tested. Wow, cool. Now, I don't know if there's any truth to it, but you know, it's such a big market now. And the fact that there's coming out with five inch tubes and you're going to be able to see five inch tubes in center consoles and stuff. That's I think you're gonna, yeah, you're going to see a different, a different world of it. And if, like I said, if you can see 600 feet versus a thousand, I would take that, you know, and it was half the price. Oh, yeah. We'll pay twenty five, thirty thousand dollars for a really good sonar. I mean, look what we pay for electronics now. So yeah, yeah, no doubt. Well, as an installer, what's what's the importance of of having a, a good relationship with your installer and your suppliers, or, and also helping the the future of electronics itself? Like, how what's the whole network between? Like somebody like me who's like, okay, I want this and I want you to put this in for me, Rich. What, and then for, this is what I like about this, what I didn't like about it. How do we get that back to the manufacturers? And and will they listen? <laughs> uh, <laughs> will. Uh, guys like Garmin that are so set in their ways, they're, they're not going to listen. Um, you know, they, they'll take a little bit of input from you, but they're not going to make serious changes. I will say ones like Furuno, like Furuno USA, you know, you can talk to people there that appreciate what you're trying to tell them and the, the changes you're trying to make. Does that it has to then make it back to Japan and through engineering and everything else. But right. They, listen, um, I believe, and what I've noticed is, as we were saying earlier, like Navico's taking their tech support third party. Um, Victron, I'm a Victron dealer, which is a, a lot of electrical, not electronics, but electrical they, when I went to school for them, they were adamant about not having a tech line. They want to basically have the distributors, the people that are selling the product, be the technical support. And this is the way a lot of manufacturers are going. 
They want That's me. That's awesome. It, to a degree. But what you have to understand, the second side of this comes into is when I have somebody that, you know, purchased something not from me, and then they call me because the other person hadn't went to fruit. They were only a seller. They uh, had no okay. time in the field actually installing it. And then I am obligated through my distribution through Victron in order to answer that question or help that customer, which I don't mind doing. Because I, I truly believe that if you help somebody now, it will come pay you tenfold years down the road. I have no problem with that. But that concept of me is, is I think it's going to make it very important for, for whoever buys their equipment, whether it be their fishing rods or whatever it is, their char plotters, buy it from someone that you can talk to over the telephone. And I, I'm not a big fan of Amazon. I understand it fits a lot of bills and I do use it weekly, but I try to avoid it if I can, because I do believe that there's a void in this country of, of communicating with the people that are distributing the stuff. And I think now and in the future, it's going to become more needed than ever because the manufacturers are becoming less, they're less inclined to help you. They want us to help you, which is fine. I have no problem with that. Teach me and I will teach them. That's mm -hmm. my theory. So okay. um, I, I see it a lot where a lot of people will try to purchase something off, say Amazon, and then they go try to get help with it from someone like myself. Like I said, I don't mind, but at a certain point, you just got to realize that if you just would have went to someone originally who was there and trying to make sure you bought the right stuff at the right price at the right time for your application, it will save you tenfold. I get on so many boats that are have a mismatched equipment. Why I purchased this GSD28 transducer box and it won't work with my 599LH or LM transducer. I'm like, well, did you look and see if it's got on the compatibility chart? No, I didn't. Well, I would have told you right off the bat because I've already experienced that or yeah. I would not have told you to buy it unless we go look at the compatibility chart first. We need to know it's going to work before you buy. And that's the internet's a wild, wild west. We all know that. You got to be careful what you read. Some of it's great. Some of it's not so great. So just be be adamant about picking out your equipment from somebody that you're going to want to establish a relationship for long. Um, the other thing you were saying something about technician wise is there is a huge void in our industry, both across the entire board, whether it be travel lift operators, everything, you know, guard managers, so expensive everything. now. Oh, it's it's so bad. There's nobody. And it was funny because when I worked in the Marine world, I watched a, a period of time when nobody was getting into it. Everyone was into computers. Go be a computer programmer. Go get into security and software or something along those lines. And we didn't have any kids coming into Gibson Island Boatworks that wanted to work. We either had 55-year-old gray-haired guys or 20-year-old kids. And the kids, we had to bring them up. Well, because the 20-year-old kids never got to work around 35-year-old guys, so 50-year-old guys didn't want nothing to do with them, they're not <laughs> proper, well, they don't. They're not getting proper apprenticeships. You yeah. know what I mean? So, so there's a huge void in our industry, and especially in the marine electronics industry, you know, that if you're, a, if you're good at doing, you know, low voltage wiring in a house networking or something like that, but you also love offshore fishing and you're not married and you're not obligated to a bunch of bills, maybe you should think about moving into something that if you want to be more passionate about your career, which is very possible, move into marine electronics or move into something that you love doing with boats, you know, because I believe you can make almost as much money as a boat guy as you can anything else out there. If you put your heart and soul into it and you dedicate the time to become really good at it, by, by 10 years in, you'll be making six figures. Yeah, That's no doubt. I, I agree 100%. Maybe if you excel, maybe even quicker than that. More. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah.
Well, what's the, what is the name of your company and how can people follow you, find you and, and contact you? So we do distribution through Marine Electronics Unlimited, which is a website, marineelectronicsunlimited.com. I do installation through Maryland Marine Electronics, which is more, it's just me. I have no employees. I order the parts, I install the parts, I drive there, I do everything. So I, I saw the niche for the, the distribution side and we created a website that's purely Marine Electronics. There's no fishing rods on there. There's no life rafts. It's just Marine Electronics. Right. I don't expect that to be my living, but I wanted to create a website where people could go to and find the information they're looking for and not be cluttered up by everything else. So I don't know what that is, but if you want to buy some Marine Electronics, you can go there. But if you really want to talk to me, which I have the knowledge in my head more than anything else, you know, right. my phone number is 443-253-2746. Right. Call me and uh, I'll be more than glad to answer any questions. Um, or just reach out to the website, which is sales at uh, marineelectronicsunlimited.com. Easy enough. All right. Well, thanks a lot for your time. This has been awesome. So yep. much cool information here. And I'm really anxious to see your boat when you, you get finished up. I'd love to take a ride on it. Hopefully yep. uh, all goes well for you and you're good to go for Wave Marlin Open come 2025. Yeah, that's the plan. I'll see you there. So <laughs> Awesome. Well, thanks, right. Lane. I, I really appreciate this. And uh, it's great to get to know you. And, and it's really cool what you got going on there. I mean, and a lot of props to anybody that puts that much time and effort into something that special. Pretty cool. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in and listening here. This was episode 32 of the Salt Euphoria podcast. And before we sign off, we're going to jump into my top yachts of this episode. So let's get straight to it. Um, let's go with the custom sport fishing boat category. I'm only going to pick one for this one. While there are not a lot of great options that I haven't mentioned already in my past couple top top yacht segments, um, this category is tough right now. There's not a lot out there that I, you know, that, there's not a lot out there that looks like an amazing deal. There's definitely some great boats available, and as they should, they they are valued where they should be because they're worth it. <laughs> but this is the best deal I found for the time. It's a very pretty boat, the beautiful mezzanine. And as for any gorgeous custom boat, it has a full teak deck and covering boards, and it's listed for just under $1.4 million. It's a 2002 55-foot Jarrett Bay. Really pretty boat. It has cat C-18s. It does have a fair amount of hours for the C-18s at 5,700 hours, so you're likely getting close to an overhaul. But overhauls on C-18s aren't that expensive given the expense of this vessel and all the recent upgrades that this boat has had. I mean, it has a lot of new upgrades and the Furnoami sonar being one of them and not the least of them. And there's no doubt this boat has got to be very fuel efficient at a very nice 29 knot cruise speed that, you know, works anywhere in the world for you. And as per Jarrett Bay, I'm sure this boat rides out nice. Next on the list will be my top production boat pick. And again, it's going to end up being a Viking. It is right now listed for, 1.15 million it's a 61 foot 2005 viking and i'm definitely a little biased because i run a lot of vikings and my favorite one i ever ran was a 61 footer it was a great boat really good sea boat for what it is and it's got a lot of room you can put a lot of people in there for doing a lot of traveling if you want to travel bahamas the caribbean it's, it's definitely got a little bit for everyone and it's a comfortable cruise usually 27 knots gets the job done it has the MTU 12 e 2000s with 4,900 hours, and it has a, already has a mezzanine cut into it, and it's done. And the boat just looks very clean throughout. And again, I just I really love fishing on a 61. It 
handles well, fishes well, and travels well. So that's my top production pick for this week. So four sport fishing boats under three hundred thousand. I'm going to choose one that right now is listed for one hundred eighty-nine thousand dollars. It is a 1987 46 foot Bertram that looks like it's had a fair amount of money put into it. The boat actually looks really pretty. The previous owner has definitely put some money into it, and they've added a mezzanine, and all the cushions look very new. Everything looks great. Um, only downfall, I would say, is it does have the old Detroits in it, but that's easy enough to swap out. So for the price at $189,000, you put some newer engines in there, whether it be Cummins or Cats or whatever you choose. Something newer, lighter, better would make this boat cruise at a reasonable speed and sip fuel a lot, a lot better than the Detroits that it has in it now. Could make it a great boat, a really cool boat for the islands, and an easy owner-operator boat because, you know, it looks pretty good throughout. The listing does not show any interior pictures, so really can't vouch for what it looks like on the inside. But either way, at that price, $189,000, you could easily gut the interior while you're doing your repower and make the boat exactly the way you want it for a lot less than you could build a 46-footer for. So it's a good option if you're looking for something that you want to put a little money into or if you just want something simple just to go out on once in a while. You don't have to do anything to it. So last but not least, sport fishing center consoles. I know I did a 31-foot Bonadeo, my first one, but I really do love the look out of them. They're a beautifully finished boat, and this one seems like a pretty good deal for what it is. It's a 37-foot 2017 Bonadeo for $769,000 currently listed, and it is a gorgeous boat, teak throughout, just really, really pretty setup. I love the way they did the hard top. There's no pipe work coming down the aft segment of the hard top. Everything just looks very clean. And it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous center console. And it is powered by triple 350 Verados. The amount of hours are unknown on these Verados, but I'm sure this boat will fly and will ride great. And it's just a gorgeous boat. Looks like it's just ready to be fished and ready to be shown, too. Just a, a pretty all-around boat. And for the money, for anything comparable in this class, is a pretty fair value, in my opinion. And the last one will be a... And the last one in this category, and the last one for this segment of Top Yachts, will be a 32-foot 2008 Regulator. And it's right now it's listed for just under $169,000. And it's got twin Suzukis on it. It's just a lot of boat for the money. And, you know, Regulator builds a very solid boat. People respect the build, and I do too. I think it's a great boat for the money. I mean, I can't really find anything else in its class for that price. And it has twin 350 Suzukis that were put on in 2017 that have under 340 hours on them. And the boat just looks very clean. Got a trailer. It's just ready to go for any new owner. And like I said, I mean, for the money, for as much boat as this is, I can't seem to find anything else comparable to it in this size class. So that's it. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this segment of Top Yachts and for listening to the Salt Reef podcast. Again, if you want to buy or sell your boat with me, please reach out to me at rickywheeler at unitedyacht.com and that will be in the show notes. And also to see pictures and more information about these boats, refer to my stories at Captain Ricky Wheeler on Instagram and I will have them in my save story and I will put them all in my story. So you can check them out more if you're interested in any of them or want more information about them, please reach out to me. Thanks again and I'll catch you in episode 33. 
This was another episode of the Saltwater Euphoria Podcast. If you want to find out more about all the things that were mentioned on this episode, visit saltwatereuphoria.com forward slash podcast. Hit like and subscribe for more big game sport fishing, conversations with other sport fishing enthusiasts, and personal stories from the life of Captain Ricky Wheeler. This is Saltwater Euphoria Podcast. Till next time.